0: Welcome to Case by Case. This is a podcast brought to you by Luke Zadkovich. Today, just Luke Zadkovich. Callum Chain, unfortunately, couldn't be with us, but we have a wonderful stand-in in in Romina Raftman, one of our uh, associates at at the law firm ZFZ. Welcome, Romina.
1: Hello, Luke. Hello from Australia.
0: Yeah, we're doing this one um, kind of cross-world, I suppose you'd say. Um, So Romina's Uh, our pro bono um, associate and and heads up our pro bono team and so has all sorts of experience in that area. And I'm sure we will get you on to talk about um, a pro bono case one of these days. But today we're we're going into the world of Katy Perry.
1: So it's been all over the news recently. So um, when you suggested that we should talk about it, I noticed that no one put their hand up on Teams and now I realize because it's 190 pages.
0: Right. Yeah. And you're not going to call me out, are you, on whether I've read every single line of the hundred and page decision? I'm
1: sure with your experience, you can pick out the relevant parts <laughs> pretty
0: quickly. <laughs> no, I gave it a, I gave it a, good, a good crack. Um, and I'm uh, looking forward to getting into this. So yeah, we're talking about the trademark case um, in the Federal Court of Australia uh, to just. Um, get the party's names in from the outset. Uh, this is the case of Taylor versus Killer Queen LLC and, and others. Um, the citation is 2023 FCA 364 2023. It's a decision of um, uh, Markovich J, and the decision was handed down very recently on the 21st of April, 2023. And yes, I, I put the, the feelers out there into the team and said, who, look, who might want to talk about this case? Uh, we have Katy Perry versus Katy Perry, spelt differently. Um, and it, it made global news, this case. And Romina um, wanted to jump on and, and, and sing Katy Perry's song. So that's what we're going to do today, isn't it, Romina?
1: Well, no, and also i wanted to help the team because, I, you know, I'm the pro bono person in the team and I realised how big it was. So, you know, get other people to focus on the billable work. So I think I'll, I'll take one for the team for this one.
0: Very good, very good. Now, look, it's an interesting case from a legal perspective. Um, we're putting all the sensational headlines to to one side and, no, we... We're not going to put you through us singing Katy Perry songs, as tempting as that might be. Um, and we're going to get into some lore on this case and kind of uh, start from the start, go through some of the facts. Um, I might lean on, lean on you, Romina, for uh, some, of the, some of the factual background, and, and then we can actually get into the law. What was this, this case all about from a legal perspective? Um, so yeah, would, would you like to kick us off with a bit of a, a summary on... What are we talking about? What What's what, what's the background to this case?
1: So this is a case between the applicant, the dark horse of the story, the first Katy uh, Perry lyrics on there. She's an Australian designer by the name of Katy Perry with an IE and the respondent, Killer Queen, an incorporated company based in California, which was established in August 2009. And its share- sole shareholder is and officer is Katie Hudson, otherwise known as the very famous singer Katy Perry, spelled with a T-Y. The one who got away with using an Australian, an existing Australian trademark, until last Friday night, the 21st of April, 2023, to be exact, which happens to fall on a Friday night, uh, the Federal Court of Australia gave injunctive relief to one of the parties who was able to roar and live out her
0: teenage dream. I see what you did there. I see what you did there, huh? Um, we might have to weave in a few of these kind of references to, to names throughout and song names and lyrics throughout the, the pod. But yeah, so you're, so two, two Katy Perrys, one actually goes by. The, the irony is that it's, a, it's a, um, a dispute about the use of the mark. Katy Perry, and yet neither of the individuals actually had called Katy Perry. We have M- Miss, Ta- Miss Taylor, who is the claimant, the Aussie, um, who's in the clothes business, and Miss Hudson, who is um, the world-famous singer, uh, Katy with a Y, Perry.
1: So, yeah, the applicant is called Katy Jane Taylor. She's the fashion designer and is the registered owner of an Australian trademark for the word Katy Perry, which in this case is called the applicant's mark, and it's registered in Class 25 for clothes, under registered goods, with a priority date of the 29th September 2008. Miss Taylor has designed and sold clothes under the brand name Katy Perry since about 2007. And then we have the second respondent, which is Katherine Hudson, the music artist and performer, In two thousand and two, she adopted the name Katy Perry for her music career, merchandise, and licensing activities. In this case, she's referred to as Miss Hudson, and the first, third, and fourth respondents are companies associated with Miss Hudson and are called Killer Queen, Kitty Perry, and Perfect Ventures. So they all have um, cat-like associations on them. So the the case is Taylor versus and Killer Queen. So Ms Taylor alleges that the respondents have imported for sale, distributed, advertised and promoted, um, sold and manufactured in Australia, or to people in Australia, the registered goods bearing the word mark Katy Perry, and the other marks set out um, in the amendment statement known as Katy Perry mark. And in the alternative, the respondents have participated in a common design and infringed the applicant's mark pursuant to section 120 of the Trademarks Act um, or are liable as joint tort fees, So the respondents have filed a cross-claim seeking cancellation of the applicant's mark pursuant to section 88 of the Trademark Act. And relying on uh, section 60, there were trademark similar to trademark that has acquired a reputation in Australia. And section 42, trademark that's scandalous or its use contrary to law. And section 43, the trademark likely to deceive or cause confusion. So on um, the 7th of April 2020, Judge um, Markovich made an order pursuant to uh, rule 30. Point 01 of the federal court rules that all issues of liability, damages for alleged trademark infringement and claims for declaratory injunctive relief be heard and determined separately from this case. So this case just deals with issues of the trademarks. And then now that um, a judgment has been given later on, that the relief would be decided upon.
0: I think, and it's important to identify this or emphasize this at the outset. We have a number of respondents. So on the on the on the singer side, on the, the respondent side, Katie with a Y, Ms. Hudson, on her side, we have companies of hers where she's a CEO and director. We have her herself, um, but there's there there are a number of parties involved. And uh, what's important about that is that there are claims for uh, joint liability. Uh, on the basis of joint tort fees liability in in the infringement claim that Miss Taylor's brought against Ms Hudson and her companies, um, and a little bit of a spoiler alert, but th- um, Ms Taylor does not succeed against all of the respondents uh, uh, and only actually succeeds against the the uh, one of the corporate entities, which we'll get into and explain further on but it, but it's quite important I think um, to identify that at the outset that the different respondents are not all going to be liable or not liable as a whole, and the court goes through each of them to see whether the individual entity or individual is liable or not. Um, and so the, the, the kind of basic claim here that Ms. Taylor is bringing is an infringement claim. Um, and that's what the court goes through, a lot of detail exploring. As you say, there's, there's the cross-claim, which is ultimately tossed, but the, there's a cross-claim to, to touch on as well, but the primary issue in this judgment and what the, the court spends a lot of time, as you say, 150-odd pages just on, on this part of the claim dealing with is the infringement claim. And so the judgment is, is set out in a way where um, the judge methodically goes through the history you know, well, and and as we know in trademark cases, it's really important to establish who was who had it going first, who had established the mark, what was the nature of the business. Um, then, with the the secondary business, the second one coming in after the first one, how did that then establish what was its timeline? What mark was it using? Was it similar um, or the same? And so, actually, it's quite an interesting read around, you know, how, how these businesses were developed um, at around the same time. Uh, Miss Taylor's first, but in Australia, um, you know, how, how they developed and, and ran in parallel. And yeah, I, I think it's a really interesting read, actually.
1: And I think for the players at home, especially for students in the law, I mean, I always get taught during my training, know your case, uh, you know your chronology, know your case. So I think for this particular case your chronology is really going to be quite important so yeah so we have do you want me to keep going with the facts or yeah
0: yeah let's let's lay a little bit more out a bit more flesh to the bone on the facts um maybe starting with uh with um miss taylor's business you know what what, what was her business what, what was she doing in australia
1: we only have well we only have two witnesses so miss taylor the australian designer and Mr Jensen, which is actually the talent manager of Miss, Miss Hudson. So, her Miss Taylor's background and career, um, she was born Katie Jane Perry, but was known socially as Katie Perry since 2008. In March 2015, she became Katie Jane Taylor through her marriage. She completed her studies in fashion in 2003 and has worked in retail and fashion in London and various places in New South Wales, Australia, including Paddington Markets and Mosman. In 2007, Miss Taylor left her role at David Jones, which in Australia is a big shopping centre, quite high-end in some respects. Yeah,
0: big department Um, store, right?
1: Yeah, so just, you know, for the the overseas listeners out there might not know what David Jones is.
0: Yeah, I, 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 it's a, a John Lewis equivalent for the UK listeners or a Macy's equivalent for our New York uh, listeners.
1: Yeah, so I, I knew that you'd know what the equivalent would be for David Jones. <laughs> the, so, Miss um, so Taylor was determined to have high quality um, clothes that catered for a niche market, solely made in Australia. She wanted to decrease a carbon footprint by having garments made in the country that she could easily oversee and control. She understood that her entry price point for consumers will be a bit higher and therefore her target audience were women in the 30 to 50-year-old age bracket with a higher disposal income. She first registered Australian business number on December 2006 and registered an email address with katiepray. um katie.perry Perry Handel in August 2007 registered a trademark on September 2007 under class 42 clothing and fashion design first and then um she has done very small fashion parades, set up Facebook page in November 2007 and starting making small quantities of her clothes mm. but later miss, this is the interesting bit miss later miss taylor found out that she actually had not yet paid for her first trademark Um, so, and that prompted her to apply for a class 25 trade word mark that would give her more protection because she went to, um, a seminar that said that if she trademarked that, she'd have more protection. So if she wanted to change her logo later on, she'd be able to. And, but as her business was only starting, she couldn't afford to pay for the two trademarks. So she let the first one lap. Labs and decided to register class twenty-five for clothes, which is now the applicants' marks, and gives us the priority date of twenty-nine September two
0: thousand and eight. Yeah, why don't why don't we why don't we look at um why don't we look at uh, um Katy Perry the Miss Hudsons Miss um, uh, yeah Miss <laughs> Hudson Miss Hudson's career and in in you know in summary form, but how that kind of into into. It was interwoven with all of this.
1: So the respondent, Miss Hudson, on the other hand, was becoming more popular and well-known around April 2007 with the release of a single, You're So Gay. It seems so completely politically incorrect to say those things now. And this was advertised um, to um, us called MySpace. I'm showing my age because I don't think the younger students these days would know MySpace. I'm not even sure it exists.
0: I had the same thought. I had the same thought. You know what? You know, this complete sidebar. But I had the thought, I wonder whether you could bring back MySpace. Like, I wonder whether there's a market for a revamped MySpace.
1: Well, it's just called YouTube now or
0: TikTok. (laughs) Okay. So, I don't think they're going to...
1: It's like dead and buried. I'm not even sure. I actually should Google if there's still existence. So, back in the day... Anyway. Like, artists would put, yeah, music on their MySpace. Um... So, Miss Hudson's first single went viral in November 2007, her growing popularity to the point that even Madonna mentioned her in a new and -and up-and-coming singer uh, on the radio. Record sales were through the roof. She was featured Mm -hmm. on various newspapers um, around June 2008, and her other hits such as I Kissed a Girl, Hot and Cold, Waking Up in Vegas... Went viral as well. She went on various promotional tours. Uh, was nominated for Grammys in 2012. Performed at the Super Bowl. Um, performed for Barack Obama, Joe Biden. So the lot. So basically, all the way up to the present point where she had a pregnancy reveal. And uh, released a song "Never Worn White," so she's quite well known.
0: I d- I don't I I think it's face it, it's safe to say that I don't think anyone listening does not know who Katy Perry is. Um,
1: oh, I'm sure, sure there are people sure, older.
0: Sure, well, I don't be. know. I don't know. I don't know. She, you know, she, as you say, she climbed. She's climbed the. Uh, The pinnacle, the Super Bowl, right? Does it get any bigger than the Super Bowl? Two
1: thousand and nine, her talent manager, Mister Jensen, became aware of Miss Taylor's application for clothes in Australia, and he was concerned that she was attempting to obtain a financial advantage because Miss Hudson was scheduled to tour in August two thousand nine.
0: This is where the two businesses start to converge, right? We've got Miss Taylor who has set up a design clothing business in Australia, operational doing well I don't know how well it was doing, but it was it was it was building no, I don't think it was making a lot of money, but you know it, it, yeah in any event it was an existing business um, Katy Perry Katie with the Y, Miss Hudson um, is coming to Australia on a promotional tour and has a bunch of merch to sell right including clothes including headgear, including footwear, including all sorts of things um, and I I set it out like that because that's actually a key part of the decision as to, as to what, um, what products may have inf- infringed the mark that Miss Taylor had. Um, so anyway, Miss um, Hudson, the singer, is coming out to Australia to start selling, uh, to perform, but in addition to, to sell her various products, um, some of which are clothing. And so we now have this clash, you know, the, the mark that, Taylor has for clothes, um, the Class Twenty Five registered mark, um, and these items that are then being sold by Miss Hudson on her on her world tour in Australia.
1: So, in May two thousand nine, Miss Taylor received a cease and desist letter from an Australian trademark attorney, instructed by Miss Hudson's US based lawyers, to the effect that she should withdraw her Australian trademark immediately and that she, um, she's prohibited from using a mark that is substantially identical or deceptively similar in the future. Miss Taylor felt very intimidate, in- intimidated and distressed by the order, and she felt she was being bullied into signing, every, signing off everything that she had worked for. She felt that she hadn't done anything wrong, and, but she wouldn't give up without a fight. She felt that her label, being made and produced solely in Australia, was a big part of a brand's identity and was her biggest marketing point. So, um, in June 2009, Miss Taylor received further letters from Miss Hudson's lawyers as a final opportunity to correct your wrongful behaviour and to give up the trademark you have applied for. So, um... On June 2009, Miss Taylor knew that she could not afford a costly showdown, which led her to post an appeal to Miss Hudson on YouTube to say that she was absolutely no threat to Miss Hudson and that she hoped to settle the matter beforehand and come to an amicable agreement. On July 20- 2009, Miss Taylor received a draft deed of agreement from Miss Hudson's Australian lawyers and neither party could come to a mutual agreement. And- Miss Taylor was really lost as to how to defend her trademark, but by serendipity found a family connection that introduced her to the concept of litigation funders which I uh, happen to know the litigation funders is one of the board members of the charity that I work for so it's quite funny that he's um on this uh case or random um so it is especially uh the Australian jurisdiction um so Miss Taylor figured out that if she used a litigation funder she won't have to pay any upfront cost but the funder would take a cut out of any successful damages award settled and then her proceeding started on 24th of october 2019 um pleading that her case um that the respondents infringed the applicant's mark as a term registered good means clothes and citing also the priority date and that's when Later on, we go into the discussion of what is the definition of clothes, etc. But I'd like to, as a commentary, from a feminist point of view, Luke, it's just funny because reading, I mean, these two, probably ordinarily, they'd get along, maybe, if they won't have to go through the trademark thing, because they're both entrepreneurs, they're both women, both named Katy Perry, and they're both hardworking, and they both, you know, want to protect their brand. So it's just unfortunate that this has had to happen, but they have a lot in common it's
0: interesting isn't it because you know you you, you do wonder you know whether there, at some point could have been a collaboration um you know or or some type of way of you know the big name Katy Perry singer I- involving Ms. Taylor in some way in some shape or form and and making a play of it right making making light of it to Katy Perry's like you know it, maybe that sounds naive and what have you but um, uh, I don't know. I just I, I, I had the thought that it 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 sounded like at one point Miss Taylor reached out and was like saying, I, "I'm not a threat. I, I kind of want to find a way to deal with this." And you know, the Miss Perry through heavy lawyers came and said, "Forget it. We're gonna we're we're going to crack mm-hmm. on. You're in you're in breach of yeah. our our mark and what have you." And anyway, we've we've got to where we are. Um,
1: that there, there was probably a way for them to. Broaden their market, both of them, because it's a substantially different market. I mean, Katy Perry deals with the singer with younger audiences, more bright and sparkly. And then you've got the conservative looking very, you know, niche market Australian designer, Katy Perry. So I think it's a missed opportunity, I think.
0: Yeah, yeah. Much better than ending up in this kind of situation, I suspect. Um, But there we are. Um, And... Yeah, I, I, you know we've we've seen other um, other disputes in the in, in the music space recently over you know use of songs and what have you. I'm thinking of Ed Sheeran recently. In court, completely different case, of course, but um, there there can be an aggressive kind of approach to some of these decisions, uh, some of these cases where um, the artist really wants to try and protect um, their their legal capital. And, and I imagine there's some significant sums involved here. Uh, I, I don't think we really know from, from, the, from the judgment.
1: they struck that off the record. I think that's all commercial and confidential right in the end of the, um, the case. So there are four main issues that I looked at, Luke. I don't know if you wanted to. Yeah, let's, let's, um, let's hear them. So, because there are a few issues, but in, for the interest of the podcast in terms of time, so, issue one is whether any use of infringing mark in relation to goods of the same description as clothes is unlikely to deceive or cause in confusion, and whether the respondents have ground for cross-claim, and whether a defence is available to the respondent by using an own-name defence, and what relief can be sought. Those are the four main issues that I thought maybe we could focus on. Unless yeah. you want to focus on other things
0: too. No, I think that's right. And Look, I think the, the place to start is um, the the infringement claim, as you say, and and the claim under section one twenty one of the trademarks act. Um, and just to read this out, I think is probably the place to start, and then we can unpack it a little bit. There's two elements to it under sub one and sub two. Under sub one, a person infringes a registered trademark if he or she uses a trademark a sign that is substantially identical with or deceptively similar to the trademark in relation to the goods in respect of which the trademark is registered. So that's section 121 of the TM Act. And then the second um, uh, potential infringement here is under um, subsection 2, a person also infringes a registered trademark. If he or she uses a trademark, a sign that is substantially identical with or deceptively similar to the trademark in relation to the goods of the same description as that of goods in respect of which the trademark is registered. Now, there's no dispute that the mark, and it's admitted by the respondents, that the mark used by them, so by Miss Hudson, the singer, um... Uh, is deceptively similar to miss taylor's mark that's that's not in dispute um, what is in dispute is use under subsection one uses a trademark sign um, and then under um subsection two, the issue there is um whether the goods are of the same description of the as the goods to which the trademark is registered so we have kind of two issues to unpack um, and the court then starts with looking at the, the primary claim under section 121 um, and explores what does uses a trademark mean what does what does that mean to unpack that, looks at some um, previous decisions. So, looks at the the play grow uh, and play go <laughs> decision, uh, and, and unpacks some of the um, the principles on use and use as a trademark from from that decision. That was uh, another Federal Court of Australia decision from 2016, so not that long ago. It was about toys, um, toys from China. Uh, and in that decision, there was also reference to the the old case um, in Estex Clothing uh, and Ellison and Goldstein from the from nineteen sixty seven, um, and the E and J Gallo Winery and Lyon Nathan decision of twenty ten, um, and the one of the key key points of that decision was. Um, that when looking at the word use, uh, that the definition of trademark, and and that is particularly the mark, is that it's used or proposed to be used in relation to goods for the purpose of indicating a connection in the course of trade between the goods and a person who has the right to use the mark. So it's the, the mark... The, the use of the mark goes to this connection point, the, the connection between the goods and the connection between the person who has the right to use those goods. Uh, and then when you, when you kind of unpack use of that trademark, use of um, the trademark is use of that mark as a badge of origin. Again, in the sense that it in indicates a connection in the course of trade between the goods and the person who applies the mark to the goods. So it's this, this concept of you know, connection and, and badge of origin. And that's what use is um, intended to mean. And, and what's important about that is that it's objectively assessed. So it's, it doesn't matter what the subjective trading intentions of the user are it's, it's um, an objective test. And then there are different ways that a mark may be used. So for one of the examples that was used here um, was use of a trademark on a website. And whether um, the websites that were advertising uh, the clothing of Miss Hudson, the singer, um, her clothing in Australia, whether that was use of a trademark in Australia. And one of the the interesting points about that is that the infringing conduct needs to happen in Australia. And so you have some some cases talking about, well, when does uploading a trademark on the internet become use of that mark in Australia? And just by putting it on a website in and of itself, doesn't necessarily mean that it's been used in Australia. There needs to be some additional targeting towards the jurisdiction. There needs to be some um, uh, some display that uh, suggests that the mark is being advertised through the website in the country or sold in the country. Uh, and there are a number of cases. I'm distilling it right down here.
1: No, good because this is where your experience comes in. <laughs>
0: So, yeah, that's, that was one of the key issues, um, well, one of the issues, I don't know if it was a key issue, but as to whether there was use of the trademark on a website in Australia um, and there was some other discussion around use as well. The court then moved on to look at the issue of joint tort visas. and I touched on this at the outset. Um, it's, it's an important uh, element of this decision. In that the claim was brought against the individual, Miss Hudson, and a number of her companies. Uh, and one of the arguments here is that Miss um, Hudson, the individual, should be jointly liable along with her companies for infringing Miss Taylor's mark. And there's some good law on this around. Um, when you can make an individual liable for that type of infringement claim, um, and uh, when, um, when you can't. And there, there's a couple of dimensions to it. If you could say that um, there was a relationship between the joint tort visas, such as an agent commits a tort on behalf of the principal or a master and servant type um, uh, breach, that persons who are breaching a joint duty of such may also be joint tort visas. Um, and so there's, there's kind of a category of um, joint tort visa liability which is premised on the relationship between the two um, joint parties and the nature of that, that duty. Mm. the The other type of joint tort visa liability in in these types of cases is when two or more persons act in concert in committing the tort um, and so that's you know, when two persons agree on a common action in the course of and to further uh, which one of them commits a tort and so it's this it's this concept of Kind of agreeing on a common action and then going ahead and performing it, uh, and so in those types of cases, this um, acting in you know almost like a complicit type ch- uh, claim when you're acting together with someone else, uh, and in those types of joint tort visa liability cases, it's necessary to establish that there has been this common design to participate in and or induce. Procure the the other person to act in an act of interference, then in an act of infringement as well. Uh, and so, there's the, the the court then explored this this idea of um uh common design, and we'll we'll get into some detail on that. But in short, and to kind of jump to the to the conclusion on this, uh. The, there was a an agreement in place between let me just pull this up. Katy Perry's um Katy Perry of the Y, her company.
1: Bravaduro or
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Bravado was it Bravado? Bra-
1: Bravadura. it's my B.
0: So one of the key key issues here is whether Ms. Hudson herself individually should be liable um In addition to her companies, Killer Queen, um, and Kitty, so Kitty, like a cat, Kitty Purry, which intro, funny play play on words. (laughs) Um, and the, the argument here was that from the respondents was that none of them should be liable on a joint tort visa basis. And that they did not act in um, common action or design with each other. And whether or indeed w- whether they acted in common action with another company, Bravado. Now, Bravado was the licensee. So, Bravado had the rights under agreement to sell the clothing, sell the, the apparel, sell the, the footwear and these other um, items of Ms. Hudson at her concerts in Australia. And uh, the um, allegations were such that um, each of Miss Hudson, Killer Queen and Kitty Purry, her companies, um, had acted in concert in common action with Bravado. It was almost Clear, um, bravado was not a, um, a respondent, but it, it was unarguable that bravado had been using the mark and uh, in selling those clothes into Australia. And I can only assume that I don't know this, so by all means, anyone involved in it, feel free to correct us. But I assume that going after Killer Queen and Miss Hudson and Kitty Purry um, directly. Uh, were deeper pockets, and you know, were were perhaps parties that uh, are able to pay this type of um, judgment more easily. Um, there may also be some settlement value in going after the big name uh, respondents as well. Uh, and you know, when I say that, why not just go after Bravado? So, in any event, we're looking at the liability of Miss um, Hudson's companies, and so what was important was. How, what was the relationship between Killer Queen, Miss Hudson, Kitty Purry, and Bravado? Whether they were, there was either a relationship that created joint, joint tort fees or liability or whether through the way that they acted, there was this common design, there was this, um, there was this kind of complicity, if you like, to, to use a different word um, in, a, in a prerogative sense, uh, that they were acting together. And so the court looked at the 2014 Bravado Agreement, which was an agreement between Bravado, Kitty Purry as grantor, and Miss Hudson as the artist. And under that agreement, Kitty Purry had certain tour obligations where um, Kitty Purry had to use its best efforts to carry the Bravado's designated vendor and licensed products and to work with Bravado to sell these products in Australia. And there, was, there were a bunch of obligations related to that. And what the court ultimately found was that by virtue of this agreement, it wasn't such that all the rights were handed over to Bravado and Bravado had the license and they could just go ahead and sell. Um, the agreement set up an arrangement whereby Kitty Purry. Um, had so one of the companies had certain obligations to help sell those products to help work with um, the licensee to sell those products in Australia, and that was enough to establish liability against Kitty Purry. However, the court said that it was not enough to establish um, joint tort visa liability against Miss Hudson herself or against um, her other company and uh the Court found that Miss um, Hudson was the CEO and the director of Kitty Purry, and so her her involvement in approving certain things and taking certain steps was clothed, if you like pardon the pun um, uh, within the corporate form of Kitty purry uh, it was it was um, she the, the role that she was fulfilling was not in her personal capacity but she was fulfilling a role as the CEO and director of Kitty Perry. So
1: Yeah, on paragraph 404, it said that there was nothing unusual about Miss Hudson being personally involved in decisions about the type, the design and the items of merchandise bearing the Katy Perry mark offered for sale, given her role as the CEO. So that kind of gives her a bit of a distance in terms of the whole claim to, to tort visa claims.
0: exactly. Exactly. And, 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 and you're right. So, um, on the who is liable point, it was Kitty Purry only. Um, and that was by virtue of the, the bravado agreement and the, and the obligations that that company had taken on to work with bravado in selling the clothes and other items uh, in Australia. And that comes on nicely to the other main issue um, that the court had to work through here. Uh, and, um, that was, what does, that's a funny thing to be talking about, but what does clothes mean? What does the word clothes mean in, in the, cause clothes, that's all it said. Clothes was the, um, the registered item in class 25 on the register. And there was a really interesting kind of dichotomy set up here between some authority that. In Australia, that had said that w- what is described on the register is all important, and you look to the register, and the register has um, paramount importance in assessing what is the item that's pr- protected by the mark. And then the, another line of cases that um, had said, well, extraneous material can be looked at as well, and you can look be- beyond the simple description uh, and look at you know um, other regulations and, and, and other um aspects of the law that may cast some explanation on what clothes means and the the, the debate here was because um miss hudson sold all types of things at her concerts you know t-shirts um, shoes uh socks headscarves you name it uh, costumes all sorts of things
1: so it was quite funny this I found this part of the um the case really funny because they have two distinguished um, expert witnesses come on. One has a fine arts and textile degree and the other one has 30 years of experience in merchandising. And then it boils down to the arguments of what constitutes clothes under the Class 25. And then so when you go through all the different classifications, it goes down to whether or not the item can cover, or protect your body your torso or limbs from the elements and then that comes under the definition of clothes but any item that is decorative in nature fashion jewelry or accessories or bags are not clothes so um and then there was this really nitty-gritty discussion or what does footwear come under does that constitute its clothing because it has a protective function right and also because miss hudson um, sold footwear via her perfect benches, um, but the judge in paragraph 339 deemed that footwear was not clothes because that word covered the body but not the extremities of the feet or the head. So, yeah, so it's quite quite a detailed discussion about clothes on there, but it's really important. Because that's where it boils down to is all the merchandising, right? So what is clothes?
0: It's really important. I suspect that this was a big debate because um she sold a lot of shoes. <laughs> that's that's my that's my take. And shoes are expensive and I, I would not be surprised if I don't know, Katy Perry's shoes were a big hit at these concerts and there was a lot on the line.
1: Yeah, and they were also talking about the manufacturing processes between clothes and shoes. You know, it's much more intricate and much more detailed, difficult to do the shoes. So I guess there would be, just from that very nature, it would have a markup. So I think there was a huge importance on footwear.
0: What do, What do you understand? What would you say? If someone said to you clothes, would that include um, shoes or would that not include shoes? Like just from a just from a common sense not I'm not looking for the legal answer okay to well, that. I'm going
1: to give you a legal or ish, depends because you know you and I both grew up or lived in Bulai, which is a beach town, right. so you don't see many people here with shoes
0: That's
1: you, know, right. you you know, so I wouldn't constitute that as clothes per se it's just you know something that protects your feet you can, yeah. you know, so I don't think shoes are clothes it's part of the it 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 Finishes your outfit, but it protects your feet.
0: Yeah, and also I, I think I, I agree. I also, you know, now I am gonna look at the legal reasons here, but um part one of Schedule One to the regulations, um that, that's the trademarks regulations, nineteen ninety-five. It describes the goods for item number or class twenty-five as Inverted commas, clothing, footwear, headgear, clothes, inverted commas, and so if you then go and register the mark as only clothing or clothes, you're almost you're not you're not picking up the other parts of the description, the regulations, and there's there's you could argue there's a distinction within the regulations between the 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 different types of um, items. Um, And so if you then go and only list one of those, there seems to be some distinction there. And this was the debate between the two lines of cases, I was saying. Um, Ms. Taylor was arguing, well, you don't look at the regulations. You just look at the the definition, the register. They didn't want that argument to kind of come in. And I just, I, I didn't find that a very convincing point. I'm like, if you've got, if you've got regulations that, Describe or, or differentiate between clothes, footwear, and headgear, then that is going to be a relevant factor. And it comes back to this: this um, reasonable trader, or you know, the, the objective test, like someone going and looking at the register. What would they understand the mark covers? And if clothes is there without any reference to footwear and headgear, which are mentioned in the regulations, then. Um, it would, you know, it would seem to follow that, um, the selection of clothes excludes those other items covered by the class, you know, that is the footwear and the headgear. But then the judge also went on to say, even if, um, even if wrong on the, the use of those regulations to come to that understanding of what clothes meant, um, In the in the court's opinion, the ordinary meaning of clothes is garments that cover the body but not the feet or the head, as you say. And um, the court points to two dictionary definitions, which was really interesting because those were two definitions that Miss Taylor relied on, that the the, the applicant relied on. And when I read those those definitions, I'm like, I'm not sure these help. I'm not sure these actually help her. Um, they don't, you know, they don't re- refer to feet wear, They don't really. No. Uh, and they so, uh, you know,
1: dress apparel.
0: Nearly, they refer to garments or cover coverings for the body, or you know, um, I, I think it's more more consistent with coverings for the torso and limbs, as you say, rather than feet. And um, as as both of us kind of acknowledge. Uh, from a common sense perspective, I don't think that many people would say that clothes includes footwear. Some might, some might say that, but
1: I feel the judge is also hedging her bet because she keeps saying "on the alternative." Um, so I think there is it, there's a bit of contention, you know, whether it, you know she says states in the end that shoes are not clothes, but. It's almost just giving an opening that if it's on the alternative, this would be the result. So, well,
0: I, I think that's, I think the, um, I think that might be because, um, you know, first instance judges, as they tend to do, which is quite understandable, they try to make their judgments appeal proof. And if they come out on the legal point alone and they rely on the regulations, um, uh, regulations definition to support the the decision. And they say, okay, you look at the regulations and you can see there's a distinction between clothes, footwear, and headgear, and that then guides your understanding of what's set out in class 25. Yeah, if if I may say, many times judges, quite understandably, will, will look to um, ensure that their decisions are as... Um, Appellant proof as, uh, as possible, or, or appeal proof as possible, uh, and had the judge only relied on the extraneous um, evidence point around well, you look at the regulations, and the regulations includes this distinction between <clears throat> clothes and footwear and headgear, and that should then guide how you look at the class twenty five designation on the register. If, and, and that's a legal point because there's, there's a, there is a split in the decisions about whether you should do that or not. Some of There's a case that suggests you should just look at the register and what clothes means without going beyond that. So if the judge was wrong on that legal point, there's some other um, fact-finding um, and, and legal conclusion that's not just relying upon that point. And that's one reason, perhaps, and I say this with the greatest respect, of course, but it may be one reason why there's additional justification for finding um, what, what close means based on dictionary definition, based on what the common understanding is, and, and therefore what the interested trader should understand when they go and look at the register. And just they, if they were only to go off the question of what does close mean without seeing the distinction further on, um. Yeah. So. So there we are. Um, that's how the the court dealt with the question of clothes. And so ultimately, um, the court found that there um, there was an infringement. There was an infringement by Kitty Purry um on a joint tort visa basis with Bravado, uh, and that the claim succeeded against that individual entity um i haven't gone into the you know uh, goods of the same uh, of the same description point um that was also uh that that was not established um but it was only with respect to clothes on the body it wasn't with respect to footwear headgear and some of the other things i think it, i think it did include party costumes but primarily it was for clothes as we understand them uh, to be not the footwear and headgear and, and other things. So, Miss um, Taylor succeeded. She succeeded in in, in her claim. Um, she got one of the the um, Katy Perry with a Y uh, companies on the hook here, and uh, we don't know how you know how big that claim kind of is. But um, anything that's kind of in the clothes department was was an infringement.
1: Yeah. So I think. I like what the test the judge was using um so it has the test has to be real and tangible danger of a reasonable number of people being caused to wonder whether the clothes might not have a trade connection between the two so um although the two companies sound the same, they differ in appearance and she says that miss hudson's uh, merchandise is accompanied by graphics or photos of the singer so they're really different so um miss hudson and the other respondents weren't successful in stopping miss taylor from using her trademark so that's a win for the small business owner in australia but yeah, so the test is real tangible danger
0: yeah so the the cross claim was um was tossed, so um Katy Perry tried to argue that Miss Taylor should be prevented from continuing to sell her her goods um and that that was also um dismissed so yeah ultimately this was this was a win for the you know the little guy the um the the the, the Australian designer who'd um, been going about her, her business with the clothes, uh, and um, there'll have to be some reckoning, reckoning now on, on what that equates to in terms of um, uh, the financials.
1: I mean, she's been trading for 10 years, over 10 years, using her mark, and it's quite scary how little she's earned, really. Um, one of the... During the financial year in June 2019, June 2020, she learned between $40,000 and $11,000. So that's not, not a lot of doubt at all. So there was absolutely no evidence of confusion, the judge was saying. I mean, it's just incomparable. And so I think the take home points um, for me is um, maybe as a lawyer, don't give out scary season desist letters to small businesses who've got the priority trademark already um, prioritized. It's already, you know, set in stone almost like, and then also maybe if you've got a good case, go to a litigation um, funder as Miss Taylor did. So, I mean, it's quite, this would have been quite stressful case for her.
0: Oh, I can imagine. Yeah. This, this would have been full on. It's not what she kind of anticipated she'd be getting into when she set up a, a small clothes company, but it's a big win in the end. Um, I'd be really curious to know if we find out what it what it equates to in terms of numbers, uh, but I dare say she's going to earn, uh, she, I think she's going to earn more through this than what she ever has in, in, in her business.
1: And even just the um, side publicity of the case, you know, people going to her website because, you know, they're interested about, you know, so that's just, Free publicity, right?
0: Yeah. But when you, when you think about it, as, as we said at the outset, if whatever the ultimate amount is that she gets out of this, um, can't help but think that early on, if, if there had been a different approach taken uh, rather than the heavy-handed cease and desist approach, that there might have been a, a collab or some kind of way of smoothing this out so it didn't end up in, in litigation. Yeah. Um, Anyway, look, I, I've enjoyed getting into it. This was a, a, a different case than what we usually do. It's great to have you on the podcast, Remina. Um, it's not easy to get through a two hundred page decision and try and distill it down into a podcast. So I appreciate your um, your attention to this and 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 time. So uh, thank you, and let's get let's get a, a case next time that's well in your wheelhouse. Hey. Um. <laughs> Uh, this is no worries. Alright, thanks for listening in everyone. I hope you've uh, you've enjoyed today's episode um Exploring the World of Trademark Law in Australia, uh, between the Katy Perry's. <laughs> and no singing, no singing, so singing, there no you research go. required.
1: Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right.